Welcome to ISO Chats Theology. I'm Lionel Windsor, New Testament lecturer at Moore Theological College, Sydney. During the COVID-19 isolation, I chatted with lots of my friends and colleagues here at Moore about theology, Christian life and ministry. It's the kind of discussion we'd normally have over morning tea, but the topics are highly relevant to life in a changing world. So I wanted to let you listen in. Enjoy. This is part two of a wide-ranging chat that I had with my Old Testament colleague, Chris Thompson, about the meaning of righteousness and justification in the Bible. In the first part, we saw that righteousness is essentially a moral quality. It's about being right or good, as opposed to being wrong or bad. We also saw that this moral righteousness can be credited to someone by God. In this second part, we move on to talk about justification, which is really important for sinners like us. Just understanding, okay, that's righteousness. Now let's talk about justification. So you mentioned, so what, what's the, in the Old Testament? What's, what's justification? So, so justification, um, the, the verb to justify, which is what hits deacon in, um, in Hebrew. Which all comes from the same root. The, comes the, from the same root, so Zade Dalek Kof. Um, and it's what we call a hifil form. The hifil is normally a causative type of verb. So he, Hebrews, um, this is a side note, but Hebrew is a, a wonderful language and it can express very elegantly things that in English we need quite a few words to express. So um, if you want to say, um, you know, I caused him to um, uh, kill her. For some reason, Hebrew always uses kill as a paradigm <laughs> verb. Uh, it's actually not a common verb, but Hebrew tends to use the verb katal as, um, as a paradigm verb, but it, it only occurs a few times, but it's, um, it's the verb kill for some reason. Uh, so that, examples always come to mind that have to do yeah. with killing. Um, I know what you mean. That's right. In, 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 in Greek, it's loose, and in, in, <laughs> you say, look, you know, I loose, you loose, etc. Yeah. But the Hebrew actually has a way of saying, I caused somebody to kill somebody else. And you use this hifil form. So you can actually say, I caused him to kill her. You could say that with just two words in Hebrew. Mm-hmm. Um, so hitzdik is a, a, it's a causative form. And most of the time, the subject of the verb, the person doing the action, is a judge. Mm-hmm. So it presupposes a courtroom setting. Mm-hmm. And it presupposes the setting where uh, a judge is passing judgment. Now, um, I happen to think that what the word really means is, um, he caused a person to be justified. Okay, so he caused a person, he gave judgment in favor of a person. He um, uh, ruled in favor of a person. So if you and I were in court, and, uh, you know, I have some dispute with you and the judge finds in my favor, then this is the verb that you would use to say he found in favor of me. Mm. Um, now, it's often said that this particular hifil verb is a declarative hifil. Mm. And the reason that people say that is typically the way that judges pass judgment is um, by actually making a declaration. They, they'll say, I hereby judge you 
uh, innocent or I judge you guilty or whatever it might be. And so people say, well, that's what this verb is expressing. It's expressing the judge making a statement. Um, I actually happen to think, and this is an article that I'm hoping to, to submit for publication later in the year. Um, I actually think that's, that's a mistake to think that the hifil has a declarative meaning. It's actually um, normally only said of these two verbs, one or two others that occasionally are said to have this declarative sense. But it's only the verbs justify and condemn that where the hifil is said to have a declarative sense. And I think what people are doing is they're reading in the context, a bit like we talked about earlier. Um, where the covenant gets read into the meaning of, of words like Zedek and Zadik. I think what people do is they read into this word um, hitzdik, the, the context in which they imagine the judge making a statement and think that the verb itself is, is expressing the idea of the judge making a statement. Hmm. But I think what it, what it actually expresses, and this fits with both the grammar uh, and with a few contexts in which the verb appears, like 1 Kings 8, it actually expresses the judge executing judgment, finding in favor. And so in 1 Kings 8, you know, it, it, talk, it envisages a scenario where two people have a dispute and come before the Lord in his temple, and it asks God to decide between them, um, justifying the righteous um, by, by giving to him in accordance with his righteousness and to condemn the wicked by, um, you know, bringing his deeds back on his head. So um, it's, it's the verb, I think, that... that it, it refers to the judge bringing about um, justice. Can I, can I clarify that? I think I know where, where you're getting at, but I, my, so, so the reason that I before we've had this conversation, and I think I remember you mentioned this before as well, and it's made me think, um, but mm. before you'd mentioned this, I, I, the reason I would have said that it's declarative is simply because in this law court context, what the judge is doing is looking at the righteousness of the person, looking at the person, and it's actually the righteousness of the person. Uh, if, if the judge is just and, and perfectly able to assess the situation, um, assuming ideal situation, then it's actually the righteousness of the person which mm. will end up determining whether or not the judge actually says righteous or unrighteous. So if the criminal comes before the court and they've done the wrong thing, then the judge will say not guilty. So we'll say guilty, and if the if, if it's a just judge, yeah, if they're a just judge under ideal circumstances, and then if someone comes before the court and they're innocent, then the judge will declare them innocent. And so there's a sense in which, if the judge is is a, a perfect ideal judge, then it's actually there's there's no decision that the judge makes, and there's nothing that the judge actually does to make the person justified, except investigate the matter and make the declaration. So that's why I would have said, you know, it's declarative. But it sounds like you're saying there's actually something that, that the judge is actually doing to the person and that that is before the judge did the, the, um, the hit stick, before he actually did that, they were not something. And then after he did it, they were something. Is that is yeah. that right? So he's actually done something to them. He's not made them righteous. Uh, he hasn't sort of turned them from being innocent into guilty or something. But he's done something. What what's he actually done to them? Yeah. Um, before I come on to that question of what yeah. what he's done, um, yeah. let me just say I think that's exactly right. I think that's 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 the gist of what I'm saying is that it's a verb that causes something, not a verb that declares something. And one of the reasons for saying that is Hebrew has another verb form, the pl which is typically the form, you know, if, if somebody, um, if you say about somebody that they are righteous, um, mm -hmm. use the PL form. 
And that's the form that it's, it's, you know, you don't have to be a judge to say, I could say, uh, I could declare you, Lana Windsor, to be righteous. I would use the PL form for that. And there's been a, a fair bit of discussion about the difference. I'd like to come back to this. This is a side point, but might be relevant in the future. Is Dikaio the, the Greek translation for both the PL and the Hifil? Or is it, uh, is it only no. the... No, but we can come back to that. Okay, come back to that. Right. Um, so, um, the... Um, uh, so we'll come back. What does the judge do? Yeah, what's the, what's the judge do? That's right, do? what does the judge do? So, um, but the other thing is that... Um, I think we're reading in context when we say it's about a declaration, not, not one of those instances. One, one of the things you have to do when you do this work of word study, lexical semantics, is you have to ask what's the word conveying and what's kind of maybe implied by the context. So, you know, uh, you're ordained. So have you ever married anyone? I know you've married Bronwyn. But, yes. yes. yes um, have you ever married a couple? Yes. Yes. So, so the way that you marry a, a couple in the Anglican church is you, um, I'm not ordained, I've never done this, but you, you, know, you hold their hands together and you say, I hereby declare you man and wife. Now, when you talk about marrying them, the key thing is not that you declared them man and wife, you made them, you made them man and wife. So I would say that the fact that you do it by making a declaration is not what's meant when you use the word marry in that sense. Mm. Um, you know, or if you sell me your car, um, part of that transaction might be me handing over money and you saying it's yours. But we don't interpret the verb sell as meaning say about the car, it is yours. Mm. But that's what people do with this word um, uh, hit stick. And I think the reason they do that and this is, this is what I'll be arguing in my article, is they, they, um, they look at the word sardak, which is the, the verb in the cow form, so the simple form, which corresponds to the, the, the hithil form. And they say that the cow form means be righteous. And they say, well, the hithil doesn't mean cause to be righteous. So it must mean declare to be righteous. So they've got they two possibilities in their head. Yeah, but they overlook the fact that the cow verb doesn't just mean be righteous. It can also mean be justified. So it can also be used in English. It would be the passive verb. If I, if I go to court and the judge basically um, finds in my favor, then uh, I am justified. I can use the word Zadak. Um, and those two meanings are linked. Normally it's the righteous person, as you were saying earlier, who is justified. But I think realizing that the cow verb can mean be justified helps us understand how the Hitfield verb can mean cause to be justified. Mm. So going back to your question of what is the judge actually causing? What is the judge doing? I would say the judge is causing justification, mm. which sounds circular, but in Hebrew it's not circular because um, the most basic form of the verb is actually the verb be justified. What does that mean? I think it means that you are the person who um, you're, you're vindicated. You're the one who um, is found to be in the right and you're therefore the one who receives um, the, the benefits that accrue to the person who's in the right. So if you're being accused of something, then you're, um, you're acquitted. If, you're, um, if it's a, a, a civil case and you're, you know, if I'm saying, um, you know, you owe me money and the judge justifies me, it means I get my money. So that's what the judge is causing. Yeah, okay. 
So yeah, in a sense, it's causing a verdict. It's causing an evaluation, but it's not causing a change in me. It's causing a change in my legal status. Mm. That's helpful. And that's why it matters to distinguish righteousness and justification, even though they're being righteous is to be morally right. To be justified is to, to have that status that's been actually given to you, which actually means that you get the benefits of being morally right, which you might exactly. not otherwise have had uh, if you're before the court. Okay. Exactly. Um, and yeah. I think that's, that's why it's important to, to ask what is the context here? Mm. And so I think that's, that's why um, when we come to Pauline theology, mm. um, it's really, really important to ask what, what is the, the law court situation that is in view here. And I think that's where, again, there would be a difference between probably you and me on the one hand and, and Tom Wright on the other hand, where, where he thinks that the, the, the decisive question is not, um, it's not you know, God contending with his people over their sins, it's, it's, God, uh, it's God's people and their enemies contending. And I think that's sometimes why he doesn't answer, Tom Wright doesn't answer the questions that we'd like him to answer is because he thinks they're the wrong question. So I think that, 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 that question of what is the, the, the law court in view becomes really relevant at that point. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, in the Hebrew Bible, um, I would say that, that, that justification when it's that hifil verb is, um, is normally, uh, it's, it's about eight out of 10 times it's a judge. There are two cases where it isn't. One is um, Daniel 12, where I think it... Um, it means to cause someone to be righteous, so not to cause someone to be justified, but to cause someone to be righteous. And the other is Isaiah 53. And what's interesting in Isaiah 53 is that um, it, it does seem to be a, a sort of, uh, um, uh, well, th- there, are, there are different opinions on Isaiah 53. But I think the servant, um, who's the one who's said to justify many, um, the righteous one is justified many, isn't he? Sorry, just to... Just I beg to... your pardon? Is it? It's, it's by. Uh, I'm, I'm going from memory here, but it's it's uh, my righteous one will justify many by his by his something. I can't even remember what it is now, but it's by his something. Yeah. Rather, my righteous one will yeah. justify many. Yeah. yeah, I think it's by his righteousness. But I can't by, even by his righteousness. Yeah, which is why I was confused. Yeah. But the um, yeah. but the really striking thing in that passage is that um, the, there's no. He's not acting in the capacity of judge. And I think that's one of the places where it's actually quite helpful to see that the hifil is normally causative. So I think what it's saying is that he's causing many to be justified. Mm. Um, mm. So let's have a look. Um, uh, so. Oh, it's by his knowledge. Okay. Uh, so, well, I'm sorry, I've got that in the. Uh, well, yeah. So the word by his knowledge, depending how you read it, it yeah. either comes at the end of the first half of the verse, or it comes at the beginning of the second half of the verse. Mm. But, um, but according to the ancient scribes, it belongs with the first half of the verse. And so um, the second half is just uh, a righteous one, my servant will justify many mm. and their sins he will bear. Mm. So you've got, um, you've got those two ideas that he's going to justify them and he's going to bear their sins. And I think the theology expressed that, and it is unique. And I think that's one of the reasons why Isaiah 53 is one of the most hotly contested passages in the Hebrew Bible, because a lot of people say, well, this is a, an idea that's alien to the Hebrew Bible. And I think it, it is unique. But I think you have there the idea that by bearing sin, the servant brings about 
the justification of many people. Mm. Um, who are sinners. Words, <laughs> sorry? Yeah. Many people who are sinners. That is, he doesn't many bring people who are righteous, but of sinners. Mm. Yeah, and I think the idea is that he's, he's taking their sins onto himself, and that by taking their sins away, he enables them to have the declaration of innocence before God, which I think is the same theology you find in, in Psalm 32, where um, it, it, Psalm 32 is really a psalm about, about forgiveness. And it talks about um, sins not being counted, sins not being credited. But what's really interesting in Romans 4 is that Paul uses the example of righteousness being counted. And I think that reflects the fact that, that in the Hebrew Bible, as I said earlier, sin and righteousness are, are opposites. And if your sins are not counted, then by definition, you're, you're innocent, you're, um, you're righteous. Mm. And so um, it seems to me that um, what Paul's doing by citing Psalm 32, which, by the way, is um, a psalm of David. David is an Israelite. Um, Paul certainly would have read it as, a, as a, a Davidic psalm. But for some reason, Tom Wright thinks this is all about God bringing Gentiles into his people. Seems to me yeah. it's, it's not a song. I read that recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's reading that because he thinks Abraham was a Gentile. And so he, I think he thinks that Psalm 32 isn't, you know, he, I think he's using the wider context of Romans 4. But um, I read it completely differently. I think in Romans 4, what he's saying is that by forgiving sins, um, God is counting us as righteous, that, that forgiveness and, and justification are two sides of the same coin. Mm, mm, would yeah. that fit with your reading of Paul on it? It would, yeah, and uh, it, certainly. Uh, I think uh, so. So to just go back a little bit, uh, but I think we're we're moving forward at the same time. Um, that mm. the Greek word dikaio, dikaiun, depending on how you want to say it, uh, is the word that we're talking about to, that is translated as to justify, uh, and. Certainly amongst the reformers, the key debate or the key, the key issue that they had was between two possibilities. Uh, and one mm. was the possibility from Augustine that had been so, uh, so strong, which actually really comes from the, as far as I can see, it's, 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 the Latin is very strong uh, influence on, on this. Uh, and that is that from Augustine, the word to justify actually means, it's causative, it means to make what it means is to make righteous. Mm. Uh, and so uh, it's actually, so for, for Augustine and many who followed him in the medieval time uh, and, and in exegesis, when they saw justification, they were actually thinking, well, actually to make somebody righteous. So what God does to us is that he, uh, th through, 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 through baptism, um, he gives us that perfect status, but then through our life, uh, and through penance and uh, various, the, 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 as, as we do what is right, God's grace makes us more and more righteous. And that's what justification is. So there's a sense of justification at the beginning of our Christian lives, but it's not complete until the end of our Christian lives because God is making us righteous. He's making us morally good. Uh, and so no, no quibbles over the meaning of righteousness uh, that the reformers had with anyone, but... Um, the, the issue was really over the meaning of the word justify. And for them, the other alternative was it's not, it's not, no, it's not actually to make righteous. And they say it's, it's to declare righteous. It's to say this person is indeed righteous. So they would say it's, it's declarative. Uh, and I, but I think what you've said 
fills it out a little bit more and gives it a, just a little bit more helpful nuance. Um, you could say it's not to make righteous, it's to make justified. That is to, to declare that a person is indeed uh, righteous, by, but actually by conferring that status of justified upon them. Um, and so it's causative, not just declarative. Uh, but yeah. in, in that debate, is it make righteous or declare righteous? Uh, the answer, I guess, is declare righteous. But the, the nuance is actually, well, no, but it's more than just a declaration. It's not just that God yeah. sort of goes, oh, this person happens to be righteous. Uh, there's actually a real something that's actually going on uh, mm. there. Uh, it's a declaration that does something. It's a declaration that, that changes your status before God. Yes. Um, yeah. And that is particularly, sorry, you I cut you off there. Well, no, and I think, and I think that's important to say because I think, um, you know, sometimes people take this idea of declaration and they take it a step further to say, well, you're just saying what's already the case. Um, so for Tom Wright, justification, I think, is to do with, you know, saying that somebody is one of the people of God. But, but that's, already, that's already happened. You've already become one of the, the people of God. And so he, he makes justification less sort of theologically loaded by saying, well, it's only God saying what, you know, what's already happened. It's not about how you get into the people of God. It's about God saying who is in the people of God. Um, mm. yeah. And so I, I want to say, and I think Simon Gallicol makes this point in, uh, in a fairly old essay now, but um, you know, it's actually, it, it is a, it's a declaration that changes something. And I think the weight in the Hebrew word, at least, is not on the declaration. Mm. Um, by the way, going back to your question earlier about the Septuagint, the Septuagint, um, when it translates the PL, um and and this is this is taking me back a few years so i'd need to kind of check my notes like there are at least some places where it actually has a sort of um uh it uses a phrase so it says to um to say that they're righteous or something like this so it, it doesn't it doesn't use dikaio but i think dikaio in the new testament is sometimes used with that sense of to to show righteous um so um you know, wisdom is justified by her works, for example. Um, or I think James 2, which is a key passage. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't know if this is, um, uh, I don't know if this is right or not. Uh, you know, I'd be interested in getting a, a New Testament scholar like yourself to, to comment. But I wonder if in James 2, when James talks about how you're, um, you're justified by your works, that it's something like that PL sense of you're shown to be righteous by your works. Mm. Um, and that's that in Ezekiel, you do get that when um, uh, Ezekiel is, is criticizing the Judeans and saying, well, the, the, the Israelites have actually, um, you know, you've made them look righteous. He uses the PL of Zadak, but by your ungodliness. Um, it, it, it's... Um, not changing their status, but it's how they look. It's how you're making them. It's what you're saying about them. Um, I wonder if that's what James is saying about our deeds. And I wonder if that's, um, uh, that fits with the timeline of Abraham's life that James is talking about, that he, um, in Genesis 22, when he offers up Isaac, he's justified. Well, he's already, God's already credited righteousness to him in Genesis 15. But now he's showing himself to be righteous. He's he's been declared righteous by his deeds. Mm. So uh, I don't know any thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean it's it's a bit new to me, so I need to to look at it. But it does make sense of of what James says because James is 
point is it's about showing, you know, show me uh, that's, that's, that's his, his issue. Mm. Uh, and uh, the, the, the question is that he's got is, well, you've got this faith. Well, you know, how do we know if it's actually a living faith or the kind of faith that demons have where they just say, you know, that they, they know God is one and they, they are able to declare that. Well, no, um, it actually needs to, uh, if we're going to actually see whether that faith actually makes a real difference uh, or if that faith is real, uh, then we need to actually see if it's doing something in your life. Uh, and so perhaps that is uh, the case. I need to look at that uh, in more detail, actually, but uh, I think that is helpful he, it, because the, the whole issue with James is that James says that a man is justified by his works and not faith alone. Uh, and so... <laughs> Uh, that that seems to not square with Paul, but I think that would be yeah really interesting to look up and to to consider what James is seeking to say, and the issues that James has, which have to do with living the Christian life and wisdom. Uh, yeah. Anyway, they're my reflections on it. I, 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 I it's just made me think. I'd like to read that James chapter mm. two again and and see. Um, but uh, but going back to Romans Romans four and and also. Uh, just you know, Paul's other discussions about justification. Um, the, the the issue, which which I think has been lurking behind everything that we've been saying, but just to now bring it out into the into the open, uh, is now that we've got that. Okay, this is what righteousness is. It's a it's a moral quality. Justification is conferring a righteous status upon someone, perhaps, or saying that you know, it's declaring, but it's more than declaring. Um, and as we said, a just judge, uh, what they do is that they uh, only justify the righteous and they condemn the guilty. Mm. Uh, and God is a just judge and he is a perfectly just judge. So he will not justify the unrighteous and he will condemn the guilty. That's the, the entire understanding that we have from the Old right. Testament. And it's the understanding that we have not only from the Old Testament, from the contemporary Jewish contemporaries of Paul. Yeah. God says that explicitly in Exodus, I will not justify the wicked. And I think the section uses the word um, uh, ungodly there, I think. Ungodly, asabaya, asabaya. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, which is the same word for you in Romans chapter 4. Yeah, so Romans chapter 4, that's fine. This is is uh, such a significant verse. Um, not only is it a statement about what God does, but it's actually a statement about who God is. Uh, that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Right. Uh, if you want to say, well, is that, that's not exactly the same as unrighteous. Well, that's what you mentioned in the Old Testament it is. And also back in chapter 1, verse 18 of Romans, Paul has put together uh, unrighteousness and ungodliness as, as mm. two sides of the same coin. Uh, so... Yeah. So that's, that's not an easy, straightforward to understand statement that you go, oh, yes, that makes perfect sense. Yes, of course, God's the one who justifies the ungodly. I understand that. No, it's right. shocking. It's utterly shocking. Yeah. It's theologically, it's an explosion of, of, of immense proportions theologically to say that God is the one who justifies the ungodly. Uh, that uh, could not be heard as anything other than blasphemy almost. It's, it's a shocking, not quite blasphemy, but it's, it's getting there. It's a shocking, shocking statement. Um, mm. Would you agree that, that that's a shocking thing to say in, in the context? I would. I mean, I think it's, um, well, yes and no. I mm. mean, what, what's striking as an Old Testament scholar is 
you know, it's very noticeable in the Old Testament that there are lots of exceptions. I, I mentioned earlier that there's this basic framework whereby God punishes wickedness and he rewards righteousness. But there are lots of places where that doesn't happen. There are lots of places where somebody commits a sin, uh, often a very heinous sin, and God forgives them. And at that point, um, you're left wondering, well, how, how does God do that? Mm. Um, and I'm not thinking here of the kind of sins that the sacrificial system deals with. So in, in Leviticus 4 and 5 and in Leviticus 16 with the Day of Atonement, there, there's a... Um, there are certain sins that can be dealt with through animal sacrifices. That it's, it's a limited, the opinions differ on the Day of Atonement. Some people would say the Day of Atonement is um, effectual for a larger number of sins, but, but it's debated. Um, in Leviticus 4 and 5, with the, the sin offering or the purification offering um, and the guilt offering, it's very limited. Um, there are certain sins, there is no sacrifice that can atone for them. There's no sacrifice that can atone for murder. There's no sacrifice that can atone for adultery. And yet David, when he commits both of those sins, um, Nathan comes to him, confronts him with his sin. David says, I've sinned against the Lord. And Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. In other words, the Lord has forgiven your sin. And... Um, we're not told why God does that, or we're not told on what basis God is able to be just and hold one person's sin against them and another person's sin not hold against them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what um, is, is the tension that Paul is explaining in Romans 3, which of course comes before Romans 4, yes. where yeah. you know, he addresses the question of how can God be just and be the justifier of those who have faith in, in Jesus. Mm. And um, he talks about the offering of, of Jesus. Mm. And uh, I think that's, that's significant. So I think in the Old Testament, um, the idea that God justifies or um, seems to let off ungodly people, it's, um, it's anomalous in a sense, mm. but it happens. People does show favor. The, the guy in Psalm 32, I mean, it, it even happens quite a lot. Psalm 32 seems to be quite general. If you confess your sins to the Lord, um, then, then he won't hold them against you. Mm-hmm. But we're not told on what basis. And I think Isaiah 53 is, is I think, in the background um, for Paul, because I think Isaiah 53 is the passage that ties all this together, the idea of a, a substitute bearing sin, the idea of justification, um, the idea of a, a sort of, um, you know, perhaps even a, a sort of priestly sprinkling, the, some of that language there in Isaiah 53. So I think in Romans 3, um, Paul is saying that the offering of Jesus is, is what enables God to be just and the justifier. And um, he refers to the sins that were passed over beforehand. Mm. And I so think that would refer to the whole of yeah, yeah, that he's, he's, yeah. he's yeah, left unpunished. Or. So I think, I think that would refer to, to sins like David's sin. Mm. Because, you know, David himself in Psalm 51 acknowledges that, that you know, blood of bulls and goats can't deal with, with his sin. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, yet he uses language associated with the, the temple, cleanse me with hyssop, and so on. Mm. Um, I think what David is saying in Psalm 51 is, I need you to, 
to, to, to forgive me my sin and cleanse me from my sin. I need you to do the kind of thing that the, the, the temple system, the sacrificial system does, but I know an animal sacrifice won't cut it. Mm. And I think in Isaiah 53, where we see the servant of the Lord dying for sin, it, we actually see um, the one sacrifice that does. And so I think in Romans 3, Paul is saying that that's, that's what Jesus did when he offers himself on the cross, was he died as that atoning sacrifice for sin. And that's, that's the basis on which I think Romans 4, God is able to justify the ungodly. Yeah, so that makes sense. So, so and I said it's, it's theologically shocking. Um, if it were just said by itself, maybe it would be. Uh, but what Paul's doing is saying, he is saying something that I guess is theologically shocking and yet has been prepared for by so much of the Old Testament, by the Psalms, by Isaiah 53 in particular, and which Paul has just referred to all those things in talking about the death of Jesus for our sins in, in our place in the context of justification. Yeah, so... The well, it's, it's, fair to say, it's fair to say that Tom Wright would also see it as theological shocking, theologically shocking, but he thinks the theological shock is not God taking an ungodly person and treating them as though they're righteous. He mm. thinks the theological shock is God taking a Gentile and including them in his people. Mm. So mm. for Tom Wright, justification is ecclesiological. It's about who is in the family of God. And he thinks the big shock of the gospel is that Gentiles are included. Mm. Um, and that the big shock is not that ungodly people are treated as righteous. Mm. And just to do that, I, I can see that, but to do that, it doesn't, seem to make sense of the actual words that Paul is using here. If he were wanting to say that, he could have said that by using, for example, the word covenant or the word uh, people or those uh, kinds of words. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why that question of what the words righteous, righteousness, justification, what those words mean in their original Old Testament context and to some extent in, in the, the post-Old Testament, pre-New Testament context, um, that's why that becomes all important. I mean, there's a, I have a quote from Tom Wright, which um, I started my, uh, my paper with, or, uh, or maybe ended my paper with when I, when I presented him. He says, um, oh, I've lost it. But the gist of it is that he says, look, if you have a word that's always used to mean a particular thing in, um, in the Old Testament, um, you know, your starting point, here we go. When we meet a word or term which is used in a consistent way across a range of literature of a particular period, and when we then meet the same word or term in an author we're studying, the natural presumption is that the word or term means there what it means elsewhere. Until that is, the context rebels, producing a sense so odd that we're forced to say, wait a minute, something seems to be wrong. Is there another meaning for this word which we were taking for granted? So what he's saying is that you know, basically when you read Paul, you need to know, well, what does that word mean? In the period leading up to Paul, but because he's convinced that the word means uh, that the word righteous means um, to be one of God's people, and because he's convinced that the word justifies to do with being declared to be one of God's people, he's he's forced to read Paul in a particular way. Whereas I think um, if I'm right and, and righteousness is a moral quality, and that justification is about finding in someone's favour um, on the basis of that moral quality whether it's theirs intrinsically or whether it, you're crediting them with it mm. then i think it absolutely leads into the kind of understanding of romans 4 that we've that we've been discussing and then the end of part two in part three 
we move on to talk about why all this talk of righteousness and justification matters for us and how it helps us to read Paul's letter to the Romans. You've been listening to ISOChat's Theology. I'm Lytle Windsor, New Testament lecturer at Moore Theological College, Sydney. If you like this podcast, please consider sharing us and please review and rate the podcast on your favourite podcast platform so others get to hear about it too. Video versions are available on YouTube or on my website at lionelwindsor.net. You might also like to check out another podcast I've created called Lift Your Eyes, a series of 70 reflections on Ephesians. And by the way, the name for this podcast was created by Adelaide Windsor. The theme music was written and performed by me and Harry Windsor, and the cover art was designed by Ellie Windsor. Love their work. Thanks for listening.